National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. National. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Our topic for today's show is the Islamic Republic of Iran. Professor Brenda Schaefer is an international energy and foreign policy specialist. Her focus areas include the interplay between natural gas trade and foreign policy, politics and energy in the South Caucasus, Iranian natural gas exports, ethnic politics in Iran, and Eastern Mediterranean energy. Professor Schaefer is currently a research faculty of the Energy Academic Group at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School. She also serves as a senior advisor for energy at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies think tank and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global, Global Energy Policy or Global Energy Center, excuse me, in Washington, D.C. Professor Bender Schaefer has authored several books, including Energy Politics, which is used as a textbook in over 200 university courses around the globe. Brenda is also the author of the book, Iran is More Than Persia, Ethnic Politics in Iran. And we'll touch on that book a bit today. She's also co-author of the forthcoming textbook, Operational Energy. Professor Schaefer frequently provides research and expert counsel to international institutions, governments, energy companies, financial institutions, and regional security organizations. Schaefer has served as an advisor to Israel's prime minister's office and minister of energy on policy related to major natural gas discoveries in Israel. She's advised several companies involved in Caspian energy production and export. She has given testimony to several committees of the U.S. Congress, including the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and to the European Parliament. Brenda frequently appears on Bloomberg TV and in major news outlets worldwide to provide insight on developments in the global oil market. Brenda's held a variety of academic appointments, including serving as a tenured professor at the University of Haifa, a visiting professor at Bifrost University in Iceland. I have to ask more about that one. And at the Azerbaijan Diplomatic Academy. She previously served as the research director for the Caspian Studies Program at Harvard University. Dr. Schaefer earned a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science and International Relations from Hebrew University of Jerusalem and followed those studies by earning a master's degree in political science with a specialization in Russian studies also at Hebrew University. She completed her doctorate at Tel Aviv University. Professor Brenda Schaefer, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you so much. And where are you sitting this morning for our show? You and I are on Zoom, but uh, you're clearly not, not here in the studio here in Minnesota. Right now in Washington, D.C., but I wish I was in Minnesota. <laughs> is the heat coming I on yet? It's a beautiful place to spend the summer. Uh, is the heat and humidity coming on in D.C. yet? Uh, not not yet, but uh, but I've, I've heard wonderful things about uh, tourism and uh, summer tourism in Minnesota. So it is pretty nice here. It is pretty nice. Uh, Dr. Shaver, let's let's go ahead and dive into our topic. Uh, you are an expert on Iran. I want to make sure that uh, we pull every bit of information we can out of you. Uh, our topic for today is the Islamic Republic of Iran, or as most people just refer to it, Iran. You spent a good bit of your career looking at Iran. What, what, what was it about Iran that caught your interest as a scholar, and why have you invested so much of your career studying and writing about Iran? I mean, that's a that's a great question. Um, I would say that because Iran borders both um, the Caspian region, Caucasus, Central Asia, and at the same time, the, the Middle East, um, it's a very interesting combination, you know, sort of a Silk Roads uh, country, so combination of uh, cultures and behaviors. And, and of course, it's a very important country uh, because of its geographic location and um, um, and specifically under this current regime, you know, basically um, Iran, whether you like it or not, has a huge impact on um, U.S. national security. Um, it affects the security and stability of almost every regime in the Middle East, you know, and uh, um, and and uh, now is an ally of uh, Russia and uh, frequently intervenes in in the South Caucasus, undermining some of you know some of its neighbors. So it's a very, um, I guess, because. You know, we have sort of in the international system status quo states and anti-status quo states and, uh, you know, those that kind of want to keep the system as it is. And Iran is, I guess, would be one of the poster childs for the anti-status quo uh, states. The disruptors. <laughs> I think it would be helpful for everyone if we sort of, 
you know, spent a little time talking about Iran's uh, government, maybe a little bit how, how it's organized, the state of their economy, uh, maybe some discussions about sort of the ethnic uh, groups that exist inside Iran. Uh, that will help us uh, pr- have a foundation before we maybe get into some of the security studies part. Uh, that said, can you start with uh, explaining to our listeners kind of how Iran's government is organized and how it functions? Right. So, um, you know, a lot of regimes in the international system, they have um, institutions that might, if you sort of look superficially and you might think, oh, there's elections going on, there's a constitution, there's rights. Um, You know, and so Iran has this a lot where a lot of journalists will tell you, oh, the outcome of a certain election and, and, uh, um, you know, what's the law on a certain thing. But but basically, Iran, the current under the Islamic Republic, has basically a dual system where there's a supreme leader, which basically him and the institutions under him really make any of the meaningful uh, decisions. And then there's a whole bunch of, you know, ministries, you know, that that that. Fun, you know, function under the the elected the so-called elected president. Um, there's you know there is a judicial system, but 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 basically they have very uh, little power. You know, so they 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 engage more in sort of day-to-day running of the country. But you know, any substantial decision will be by the supreme leader. And sort of the ironic part, I had a professor when I was a was student, David Manashri, and he used to say that. It's not the Islamic revolution, but it's actually the revolution in, in Islam, because mm. um, in Shia Islam, it does, unlike, let's say, Catholicism um, or, or um, it doesn't have a it doesn't have a strong and a lot of Christian churches, it doesn't have a strong hierarchy, you know, where like someone, you know, a, a pope is chosen and then the cardinals are elected and, and you know, and they have their their different functions. Right. In Shia Islam, it's actually bottom up where, where, where an ayatollah is formed by someone who uh, just people follow him, you know, sort of, sort of basically by the strength of his teachings. And, and, and uh, um, so so the idea that the political that a political framework would impose who the ayatollahs are is exactly the opposite of how Shia Islam actually chooses its leaders. Uh, and in fact, traditionally in Shia Islam, they stay out of holding political office, like their their ideas that they should advise or influence people, but they shouldn't actually, be, you know, you shouldn't be in charge of collecting the garbage. You, you, and, and so basically the Islamic Republic, by, by, by sort of attempting to represent Shia Islam, actually uh, embodies sort of the opposite of the principles of, of Shia organization. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, it's it really is a, a fundamental change in what Shia Islam is supposed to be about. And we should highlight for our listeners that Iran, it, 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 I mean, Iran is sort of the center of Shia Islam. Most Muslims across the world are Sunni. Is that right? Well, that's true. I, I mean, that's true that that it, it, uh, Iran is the lar- largest uh, population of Shia Muslims and that most are Sunni. But I don't think Iran represents most Shia in the world. And, and I think most of you, you know, the other... Big Shia communities like um, Azerbaijan, Bahrain, uh, Iraq. Um, you know, certainly in the case of Azerbaijan and Bahrain, they would not see Iran, you know, as their leader and somehow that they're following. And in Iraq, it's kind of split. That's kind of you know part of the struggle in in Iraq is that um, you know Iran really tries to to run the country there, and 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 it, you know it, it's a sort of a player in the or a dominant player in the domestic politics. But, um, you know, and certainly in terms of, you know, traditionally the centers of Shia Islam are actually in Iraq. They're not, you know, they're not, uh, they're not in Iran. And sort of even the Islamic Republic by trying to set up Qom as being, you know, a more important center than, uh, you know, it, it was actually, again, it's where like the politics tried to dictate the, the religion versus, you know, versus the, 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 the opposite. So, but... Uh, I'd say also in foreign policy, despite its rhetoric, Iran doesn't really stand up for Muslims. And I know that's going to sound a bit surprising because all, you know, that's what they you hear about their rhetoric. But anytime their state interests have come into um, have come into conflict, you know, or let's say their power interests of the regime staying in power have come into conflict with 
the the interests of different Muslim groups in their in their bordering areas. They've always chosen state interest, power, you know, stability of the regime. And you know, a good example is that you know Chechen Muslims, you know, at the time in the '90s when Russia's you know Moscow's bombing the hell out of them, and and uh, you know, really tens of thousands dying in the month by month, and Iran you know, continues to cooperate with Moscow. If at all, they use the Chechen thing to even elicit more support from Russia. And um, we have also on Iran's borders, um, Christian Armenia invaded Shia Azerbaijan, kicked a million people out of their homes, you know, refugees. And actually Iran sides with Armenia in this conflict because of its, you know, state interest. So so they don't they don't tend to, despite their rhetoric, they don't tend to really uphold the the uh rights and needs of different Muslim communities around the world. I'd like to just talk just a brief bit more about the Iranian government. So you mentioned the Supreme Leader. It's my understanding the Supreme Leader chooses all members of the judiciary personally. Is that right? Well, I don't know. I mean, personally, but but has the authority. Yeah. So so, uh, yeah, the the judiciary in no way is is independent. (laughs) And uh, um, yeah, and even the law, you know, the laws are are quite, you know, are quite strict. And, and, you know, we're we're seeing now, I mean, it's just it's, um, you know, such an uneven application of law, like, let's say, the mayor of Tehran, previous mayor of Tehran, he shot his wife while she was in the shower and pulled blood. Um, and he's out of jail after four years and people, young people that participate in the demonstrations and maybe threw a garbage can at the police forces, you know, they're being executed now. So it's really a completely uh, politicized uh, judiciary system. It also has a problem, you know, that about half the population of Iran is influent in Persian, but it all is run in Persian. So if you're ever uh, a defendant or an interrogation, you know, it could end up that you don't even understand, you know, the whole process that you're that they're you're undergoing. So um, again, this is where we have institutions that um, they look like they're a judiciary or something that looks like an election, but it's really more um, more on the formal side and not not in terms of content. Let's tap into a, a little bit more of your expertise on uh, ethnic politics in Iran. Now, the people of Iran do get to uh, elect their members of parliament and and the president of Iran, but the, the candidates, as I understand it, for the president have to be approved by the Supreme Leader. Uh, but right. when, they, when, when we're talking about elections for parliament members and for the president of Iran, how, how does the ethnic politics across Iran play out? It, it's not, it's, as you said in the title of your book, it's, it's more than Persians, right? Uh, there's a whole bunch of different ethnic groups in Iran. Can you talk us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, so we all, we often refer to, you know, Iran as Persia, Persian music, Persian food, the Persians. But, you know, just like we learned that the Soviets were not the Russians and that, that you know, and suddenly when that started to open up, we understood there were, wow, Chechens and Uzbeks and, and Georgians and Lithuanians and, all, you know, all sorts of people. So the same thing is pretty similar with, with Iran, where it's much more, you know, complicated, complex uh, ethnic makeup. But over half of the population of Iran isn't uh, Persian. Um, the biggest minority groups are the Azerbaijani Turks. Um, there's also the Northern peoples, Gilan, Mazandaran, um, uh, Kurds, Baluch, Arabs, uh, tur- Turkmen. Um, so, and, and most of the ethnic minorities populate the bordering provinces. And so this leads to two things. Um, one, not only are they not, you know, they're not allowed to use their language or to educate their children in schools in their language, but they actually, because they're in the periphery, they have a lot lower level of government services. They have, you know, human human development indicators. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's a force that influences Tehran's foreign policy. So, um, you know, if you're if you're thinking about your, you know, if you're having problems with Pakistan on the um, border, like we just had like last week, uh, or I believe on Monday, five border Iranian border guards on the border with Pakistan um, uh, killed, you know, and they're probably local uh, ethnic Baluch, but they have, co- you know, family members on both sides. So sort of a domestic security issue becomes also a foreign policy issue. And we see this almost on every Iranian border that the ethnic issue um, comes into their foreign policy considerations towards their neighbors. How, how do the ethnic uh, breakdowns impact uh, elections for the Iranian government? Um, you know, as you said, it's it's a chosen list, you know, so it's sort of like going into a, 
uh, a restaurant and they said, well, you can only have the grapefruit and the cottage <laughs> cheese. You can't, you can't order anything else, you know? So I, I don't know, I, you know, how much the elections really, uh, you know, reflect something on the ground. And the um, one thing that is interesting is that there, there are local council elections and these in the Persian populated areas, these are not, usually people don't go out to vote. They don't, they don't care a lot, but in the ethnic populated areas, they, they tend to come out in higher rates because they see it as their only way to have sort of some kind of influence over their, over their local governance. It sounds to me that there's a, uh... There's a good bit of friction uh, between the Persian-controlled central government and kind of the ethnic uh, provincial areas around the periphery of, uh, of Iran. Is that is that true? Yeah, I believe it's true, and I believe it's true historically. Like, if you look throughout the 20th century, every time there was a weakening of Tehran, then suddenly the, the ethnic groups rise up and they try to have self-rule or independence. And, you know, so, so, so but the problem is, and again, like, as anyone who followed the Soviet Union over the years, right, that when you have uh, um, suppression, you don't really know what the ethnic groups think, what they're doing, and even themselves. You know, there's one thing, it's a, a lot of it about people ask, well, do the minorities want to want independence? They want to break up Iran. It's not, you know, a lot of it depends on opportunity, right? Will someone go and for their independence go and, you know, get themselves killed or hung or, you know, I, I you know, that's very different than if there's sort of some some weakness of central control and they have an opportunity to do things without, you know, with, with lower costs. And this is what we saw with the Soviet Union breakup. I could say that I don't, I don't know how many of the leaders of Central Asia thought of independence before Moscow was basically, you know, Russia itself, in a sense, pulled out of the Soviet Union. Um, but once they had the opportunity, they definitely wanted it and developed it. And so I think a lot will depend as, you know, how, how events evolve in Tehran. So we'll, we'll return to that uh, topic a little bit later in our discussion. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Brenda Schaefer from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, and we're discussing the Islamic Republic of Iran. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Dr. Schaefer, you, you've concentrated a great deal of your academic study, and you play an important role as an advisor in the field of energy. Uh, that's obviously a huge field, uh, globally significant for everything that happens in the uh, in the global economy. But when we talk about Iran, energy is a very important aspect of Iran's overall economy. Uh, Iran has traditionally been a major player in the history of oil and gas commodities, but their ability to export oil and gas has been, I'd say, significantly curtailed for, for years by international sanctions on Iran, uh, place on Iran due to the Iranian government's activities across the Middle East and, and, and even around the world. Can you give us kind of a general rundown on how the Iran, Iranian economy is functioning today? Uh, maybe cover uh, the major sectors which Iran specializes in, including oil and gas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, in, 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 there's been a lot of ups and downs in an almost paradoxical way. Um, the U.S. and global sanctions in the early, around 2012, 2000, started under the Obama administration, um, they actually helped Iran solve a major economic problem, which was that um, Iran had extensive public subsidies for almost all goods. You know, certainly fuel was a few cents a gallon. Um, you know, electricity was almost free. Bread, you know, bread, chicken, everything was subsidized. And of course, when you have subsidies, you have waste. You know, and you have a, you have a, you know, it's probably better that people allocate their own money than that the government allocates their money. Um, and you know, a lot of corruption, a lot of waste. And and the minute those sort of comprehensive sanctions were imposed, it sort of Iran went over to a war economy and was able to remove a lot of the sanctions. And that that actually. Um, you know, helped, you know, uh, uh, inadvertently helped the economy, you know, get on a better track when there wasn't all this waste. It was about 16% of GNP that was going to, to subsidies at the time. And you would see, I remember um, I was traveling in East Turkey and uh, with, a, with a road trip and uh, I see a guy that I don't know, you could really call it a gas station, but it was a donkey with two, two gasoline canisters on each side of the donkey. And you could, you know, you could, 
you could fuel your car from the donkey. So I, I went up to him. So I just kind of, inter- I've never taken, you know, fuel from a donkey before. <laughs> and uh, I asked him like, where, where is he from? He said, he's like uh, from Iran. He comes over the border with the cheap fuel and he sells it in Turkey. Right. So you end up, if you have, to, you know, subsidies, these goods end up being smuggled to places that don't subsidize and, you know, and you, you, you take advantage of the, the price, the price gap. Um, that's, you know, just one, you know, one example, one example, but um, also, the sanctions allow the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guards, to actually completely control the Iranian economy. So almost every major sector, you know, telecommunications, uh, power production, cement production, construction, it's it's connected to one, you know, one or different elements in the uh, Revolutionary Guards. That's like one of the reasons why, you know, they really will fight for the death to keep their power in the regime, because it's not just about you know, being politicians or even ideology, but it's but it's really they 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 control the economy and you know people would lose their 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 livelihood, um, um, and uh, the the second round of sanctions that um, initially imposed by the Trump administration in two thousand and eighteen and and still continued under the Biden administration, um, essentially they're not really at least under the Biden administration they're not really being enforced. Um, essentially, Iran can export its oil pretty pretty freely, and, and it continues to export its its natural gas. Um, and with the oil exports, they have to sell at somewhat of a, a discount, and because it's sanctioned oil. But with oil prices being so high over the last couple of years, it's still pretty big revenue. Um, and now with the sanctions on Russian oil, there's sort of a competition in the illicit oil market between Iranian and and uh, Russian Russian oil. Um, and of course, the big benefactor of this this market we've set up of uh, oil, you know, sort of uh, sanctioned oil, Russian and Iranian oil that's being traded at a discount, and then sort of the global oil market is that China is the huge benefactor of right. this system because essentially they buy, you know, the one of the biggest inputs into the to to economies, which is oil. They buy it at about a third cheaper than the West does. So you know, so think about it: if you had a store. And one store is paying, you know, a, a, a third less on electricity than their neighbor. You know, obviously they're going to, you know, they're going to be more have a competitive edge. So we've set up a system that's very oil system that's very beneficial to China. Yeah, you know, we've done a we've done a few shows here on uh, national security this week talking about sanctions, and uh, the the more stringent the sanctions are that are placed on a country, uh, and the longer they they last. It incentivizes that nation to basically fundamentally change the structure of their economy uh, and to kind of go without and to, to build internal capacity uh, for all those supplies. That's particularly true in the in the arms market uh, when when those arms embargoes are, are, are instituted. Is that what we're seeing in Iran, basically? I mean, that's what I think I'm hearing from you, is that Iran's economy has now become significantly more independent of the global supply chain. Uh, to a certain extent. Is is that right? Yeah, no, I mean, I would say, you know, I mean, it, it needs to export oil because that's its major economic input, but it, it doesn't, you know, it's basically, there's no, uh, the Biden administration doesn't really enforce the sanctions on oil. It's just maybe once in a while, there's, you know, some sort of uh, uh, dis- disruption. Um, uh uh, but but uh, yeah, I think that in general, the the U.S. and the West has to be very careful about how we use sanctions, whether it's applied to Iran. Or we we use sanctions far too much. Why do we use sanctions? Like when something happens that we don't like, like Iranian nuclear program, Russian invasion of of Ukraine, and we want to be able to do something, right? We don't want to just stand by and do nothing. On the other hand, we don't really want to, you know, go to war or anything that that could, you know, escalate, right? So the easy thing is always just to to uh, to, uh, to to um, call for, you know, call for sanctions. But we never look at like, do they change the behavior of the other side? You know, is there an off ramp? You know, and and uh, um, in the case of you know, oil. I mean, we, we. It was so obvious that we were going to do something. You know, the minute China wasn't going to join the the, um, you know, Iran sanctions, Russia sanctions, it it was clear that um, that they were just going to benefit from it. And you know, so so maybe we, we need to we need to widen our toolbox when it comes to 
Iran, I believe also with Russia, and, you know, and look at things beyond sanctions because they're really not changing the behavior of the of, uh, U.S. adversaries. So a little greater agility in the sanctions regime. How are sanctions impacting, uh, I mean, you talked about the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps sort of controlling a heck of a lot of the economy inside of Iran. How, how are, uh, are the sanctions impacting the ethnic groups around Iran? Is that part of, uh, of I mean, economic opportunity being significantly lessened, I would assume. Is that impacting the, the other ethnic groups around Iran besides the Persians? Is that part of what the burr under the saddle is for all the demonstrations that have been taking place? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think the sanctions affect, you know, all, all in Iran. But what I've heard from many, many members of opposition groups in Iran, and they also say this, and, you know, on... Um, even with television broadcasts, you know, and include, I mean, talking about people on the ground in Iran, not not people not people abroad, um, that they, you know, they still prefer the sanctions and have a chance to bring down the regime, you know, and, and they're willing to undergo the costs. And I've heard this from many activists in Iran that, uh, you know, that even if the U.S. removed the sanctions, all this would mean is that the top people would, you know, would get richer. It, it doesn't really affect them you know they they there's very little you know trickling down of the you know the economic act you know activity of the heads of the IRGC and and so I think many people on the ground you know including with this 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 current um, anti-regime movement you don't hear anyone calling for removal of uh, sanctions like they're willing to they're willing to endure them you know if they think it would bring down the regime. So what about uh, what about Belt and Road? We've talked about that quite a bit. Uh, China's initiative to uh, to create this Belt and Road economic system uh, throughout the region. Clear, clearly, Iran is in a good geographic position to benefit uh, from the Belt part of this as it expands across uh, the Central Asian republics. Uh, how will Belt and Road positively impact Iran's economy, uh, economic development as it as it moves in that direction? Do you see any of that? impact happening already right so one of the big um, one of the major strategic results of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and with you know both sanctions and more awareness to you know supply chain the supply chain security um, and and the need for um, or the or the problem with any transit through Russia from both you know the western side and the the russian side you know with all sorts of limitations is that we've really seen the rise of the middle corridor which is a transit corridor um that goes between china and europe but it doesn't go through russia and and, and initially for for years sort of the northern corridor which is uh china uh russia belarus you know and then Belarus already uh, borders uh, Europe was was the preferred uh, route over and you know for for for, uh, for both sides for China and the West because basically you went through one you know sort of one customs union union across Russia and and, and Belarus and you know in one transportation system and and things were seemed the, the less dis, least disruptable and and the cheapest but now everyone's looking for capacity on the middle corridor and it's really something um, a strategic development something something to watch. Um, and yes, it, it benefits Iran. Actually, it benefits you know uh, China. It gives a new route to China. So again, we're solving one problem by sanctioning Russia and not transiting Russia. We're creating other problems by empowering China uh, and, and and Iran. Um, also, all the landlocked, most of the states above Iran's border, its northern border, are um, landlocked countries. Central Asia, Azerbaijan, Armenia, um, and so as they um, as they look to use Russian transit less, or or now Russia doesn't allow them, um, you know they're looking for ways uh, westward, you know, and 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 uh, uh, but they're also looking southward across Iran. So this this can this can benefit uh, Iran. Actually, you know, some of the countries like Azerbaijan closed its borders with Iran and Russia during COVID mm. and actually never uh, reopened them because they also had a war um, during the COVID period. And, um, you know, so they're, they're not, um, they're not accepting sort of Russia, Russia, you know, goods trade with Russia to circumvent sanctions. But most of the other countries in the region that border Russia are in the end becoming sort of also a transit route uh, for Russia. And that's also problematic. Um, also, Russia itself has been periodically blocking oil export from Kazakhstan, which goes through its territory into the Black Sea. 
So Russia, you know, so the way you jack up oil prices, if you're an oil producer and you want to jack up revenue, is you cut back production. But Russia found something better is cutting back the production or at least the export of its neighbor. So this way, prices go up, but Russia doesn't sell less volumes. You know, so it's a pretty, pretty good trick. So, so also Kazakhstan has been looking for more ways to get its oil out to market. You know, and some of that will be through through Azerbaijan, you know, across the Caspian, through Azerbaijan and joining the westward infrastructure. Um, but some of that could end up under, you know, if, it, if it, there was a different sanctions regime going going through Iran, potentially. Yeah, that 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 uh, middle corridor that uh, you know China over to the to the Caspian, where you have uh, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, uh, Turkmenistan. That that region, I think, is going to get a lot more attention as we go forward uh, from this point in history. Uh, that that might be a whole nother show. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dr. yeah, actually, I I hundred percent I agree with you, John, and you see it with. Um, you know, Secretary Blinken receiving leaders from Central Asia. You saw this in the the communique at the end of the G, recent G7 meeting, um, discussing about the port, importance of Central Asia. And I would say that there's something um, I'm in the midst of writing about this right now. But I would say there's there's a rise of what I would call like the the the, the Turkic corridor, which is Central Asia, Azerbaijan, and and Turkey. Um, you know, Turkey for years after the Soviet breakup was pretty standoffish about Central Asia. Also, it doesn't have a, you know, physical territorial connection. But, um, you know, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with also the uh, Armenia-Azerbaijan war in 2020, when Azerbaijan was able to, you know, reassert its territorial integrity and with, with somewhat with, with Turkish help, um, the states of Central Asia now are looking for um, you know, an outlet to the West. And they're also looking for, um, you know, strategic cooperation with a country other than Russia or, or China. And so like the first agreements ever signed by Central Asian states in the sphere of, in the uh, uh, strategic sphere, defense sphere, it w with any country except for Russia were signed over the last year with, with Turkey. And it's something really which, uh, worth watching. Like you said, both the trade level with the middle corridor energy trade that's starting to go more from Central Asia uh, into Turkey across the Caspian, but also a defense component. And Iran is uh, right astride that whole uh, that whole corridor. Uh, Dr. Schaefer, we have to take just a short break uh, to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we're back here at uh, National Security This Week with our guest, Dr. Brenda Schaefer. Uh, Dr. Schaefer, I want to tap into your expertise some more on the security situation uh, with regard to Iran. Uh, maybe we can use what we've already learned uh, from you about Iran's government structure and Iran's economy to help us consider Iran's overall security situation. Uh, Iran has a, a somewhat robust military. The, the traditional forces are referred to as the Artesh. But Iran also has that parallel organization that you mentioned earlier, uh, a parallel organization to the traditional military, and that's the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, could you explain that construct to us, uh, having these two kind of parallel defense organizations uh, inside the Islamic Republic of Iran? How, how are they different? Right. So, they're, yeah, they're different in, in many ways. Um, you know, the military is, um, let's say, less political. It's, it's made up, you know, they have a conscription and 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 so not you know not everyone who serves in the military necessarily identifies with the regime's goals or or its policies I, IRGC is a lot um, different you know so it's 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 people that are you know volunteer to be part of the IRGC and are accepted to the IRGC um, they have a lot bigger ideological and political you know commitment to the Islamic Republic and as we discussed before, there's also this economic component where um, they basically own or run, you know, essential industries in, in, in Iran. So they have sort of their own economic base as well, and then economic interests of the of the various uh, commanders. And IRGC has its 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 officers and proxies all over the Middle East. I mean, basically, the Middle East 
today without the IRGC's activities in uh, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq would be a completely different uh, Middle East, especially after the Abraham Accords, which basically opened up relations between Israel and most of the Arab states that you know we probably could see a Middle East without Iranian intervention. Um, and terrorism, and we, we we probably could see it in, in in Middle East that was was growing in prosperity and stability. Um, instead, you know, because of the Iranian activity, so many of the the governments in the region have to spend resources and time just to try to keep their states stable because of Iranian destabilization uh, activities. And, and I do want to dive more deeply into into Iran's foreign policy through uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps in, in a few minutes. Um, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, that's kind of a specialized organization, they have a couple of subordinate organizations. The Quds Force is one, which I want to dive into. But the economic side and sort of a regime stability side is also strongly supported by, I think it's called the Basij. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Basij? Right. So, so I mean, Iran Iran works, you know, the... the well, well, most militaries are, or, or paramilitary organizations work mostly on you know, national threats from outside. The, the, Iran's works, you know, more on, on, on internal threats. Um, and if you see the, you know, the current demonstrations, um, you know, the, the, the regime throws the police first at people, then a little bit the military, but when they really want to finish people off, it's generally the, the, the besiege and the forces that are, that are coming in and, you know, very sort of specialized with the riot control and, and arrests and, um, so um, yeah, it, 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 there's even some interesting elements where um, the IRGC has brought in foreign militias to put down some of the anti-regime activity. Like for instance, there's about about um, uh, five million Arabs in Iran. They're they're ethnic Arabs, but they're they're, they're you know they live inside the territory of Iran, and um, the regime brought in militias from Lebanon and Iraq to to uh, suppress them tw- twice already. So one, you know, the, so so sort of the idea that if you bring in foreigners, it's sort of easier for them to to kill these people and and um, yeah. So so there's so there is this overlap between the external and internal uh, missions because of these ethnic minorities that they're the the ethnic borders and the political borders in the region don't don't overlap. And, and we should highlight for the audience: besiege is B A S I J. That's how it's spelled. But there, I've. You know, I'm a retired intelligence officer. I've I've seen lots of different estimates as to how many people are in the Basij. Uh, I think the kind of the going number is about six hundred thousand. Is that is that sort of what you hear too in your circles? Yeah, I don't know. I uh, I really can't comment. Okay, and let's talk about the Quds Force. That's a that's a very kind of unique uh, part of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. What is the Quds Force? Right. So, 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 so they also, you know, another uh, militia that is uh, that you have to get accepted to, you have to volunteer for um, and gets, you know, also the um, besiege and the Quds Force get a lot of good uh, resources, um, you know, from, from the government. So um, again, like there's their motivation to support the regime and to suppress the people is both, um, you know, some of it is ideological, they support the regime, but it's also, you know, it's quite beneficial to them economically. You know, they get special housing, you know, special special prices, and, you know, they get a lot of uh, economic benefits. An interesting thing that I was hearing from this last round of demonstrations, um, a difference between like Tehran and the provinces. So so let's say that besiege forces and the Quds forces that live, um, you know, in Tehran, and they go out and they... Uh, round up people and they 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 beat people. It's like well, they go back and it's a big city. They you know they go back to their homes. People don't really know um, what they do and what they've done. But in small places um, like you know, like Abadan and, and um, Erdbeil, you know, I've heard of, of of where like actually activists have gone you know to the homes of some of these um, local uh, local. Uh, besiege and local IRGC and, um, uh, you know, threaten them. We know where your kids go to school. We know where your, you know, your wife works. And if you, you know, kill people, we understand you're not going to resign, but if you kill people, torture people, you know, you'll pay a price. And you've even seen some assassinations of, um, of, uh, 
IRGC police and besieged in their homes, uh, you know, during these different demonstrations, but it's only in the provinces because they're there identifiable. Or you saw like, for instance, in Zaydan, Zaydan's been having every Friday um, since late September, they've been having massive demonstrations there. There's been hundreds of people killed by the regime in Zaydan. It's in Baluchistan. And, you know, two of the guys that had really killed um, dozens of of, uh, protesters one Friday, the next Friday, they're sitting eating their breakfast and they, you know, when their explosion goes off exactly where they're having their breakfast and they're, they're killed, right? So I think in the provinces, people are taking, you know, actually sort of personalized um, assassination against the local besiege uh, and other IRGC um, police. Um, So it's a very different, they're much more vulnerable than let's say in the big, the big uh, central cities of the country. So the I, I've noted that uh, there are elements of the protest movement in Iran today, uh, where initially it was sort of, hey, we want reforms, but now there is a, a I don't know if it's consensus, but there's certainly a, a a group of the protesters who are basically saying an end uh, to the Iranian regime as it exists today. I mean, complete reform, complete replacement to the government. That would be clearly anathema <laughs> to what to what the besiege and the Quds Force and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps could could possibly accept, let alone the uh, the political leadership uh, of the country, kind of run by you know the Ayatollah Corps. Uh, do you see the possibility of a counter revolution uh, developing inside Iran? I mean, the whole structure is designed to stay, to keep control of the revolution, so to speak. Right. Well, yeah, you know, yeah, John, I agree with you that this is a completely different moment. You know, the demonstrators are are calling to bring down the regime, and they're not calling, you know, just to change an element of it or or about a, you know, a, a contesting a certain election result or something. This is, I agree with you, it's fundamentally to bring down the regime. Um, you know, how can it can it happen? You know, we we actually had. I always look back to 1989. Maybe you were. You were too young then. I don't know if you were you were a researcher yet, but um, I, I already was engaging in research. And um, 1989, you have basically when it's, I wouldn't say it was clear there was the fall of the Soviet Union, but it, it's clear that Moscow is losing control uh, over the provinces, has very little deter, you know, deterrence against demonstrators. And, and at the same time, we have Tiananmen, meaning where you had like two what could have been existential threats to re- to regimes, to powerful, you know, non-democratic regimes, and one regime that actually didn't use that much force, the Soviet Union, you know, collapses, and another regime that used a lot of force, you know, didn't collapse and easily suppressed the, t- you know, the Tiananmen uh, uprising. And you think, well, so there's like so a couple of, like, so the question is, you know, when does force, uh, help when does force hurt, right? So, like you think in the case of China, using overwhelming force, you know, killing probably thousands of demonstrators and with within in, in a in a day, um, you know that that worked. But also in cases when you do that, that could actually have the opposite results, and you know, and really people have nothing to lose once they've lost, you know, family, their children, family members, and um, so I don't know. Are we the ten and men movement or moment? Are we the Soviet moment? Are we? Are we? You know, it's. I think. I think there's no theory. You know, I looked when I was starting to work on Iran. It's more than Persia. I was looking at all the theory on revolutions, and nothing really gives you a a, a fundamental guide of what are the you know what are the what are the posts. Um, I have a I have a feeling that it. it I mean, there's so little legitimacy uh, of the institutions of the Islamic Republic, certainly in the provinces, but, but you know, also in the central cities that I have a feeling that it'll somewhat go the way of the USSR, which was sort of implosion, you know, that basically the people that were supposed to be there to keep it together will, you know, in some, in some degree, just, just kind of give up and try to find, you know, a, a safer place uh, for themselves. Um, but it's really hard, you know, it's really hard to, uh, you know, to sort of mathematically to, to you know, to, to prove that that outcome. But but certainly I hope our analytical communities are, you know, looking at this carefully. It is kind of strange how we have this thing like, you know, sort of also, you know, embedded in your question, like, can a regime, you know, just fall apart? I'm saying like, well, I lived through as a researcher, the USSR, who among us thought that the USSR would break up, the Soviet Union would, you know, would, would just go away and, you know, to the 
trash bin of history, and and it did, right? So I think I think you know, the, of course, these regimes at some point will will fall apart. Um, you know, they don't deliver the goods economically. They don't de 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 deliver security to people. You know, I don't think every non-democratic regime is going to necessarily change, but I think certainly ones like Iran that don't deliver any of the goods to their public, um, you know, they, they, they can't s sustain indefinitely. So in addition to the international community pressures on Iran uh, impacting the economy because of Iranian actions in the region and around the world, and the fact that the construct of the government and uh, to a certain extent the security force is designed to, to maintain control in a, very authoritarian, in a very authoritarian way, you also have layered over that a population explosion in Iran that has happened over the course of, you know, since 1979, since the revolution. Uh, a huge percentage of the population is under the age of 40. And these are people who are connected to the world. Uh, they know what the world is like. Uh, is that, I mean, is that friction going to be maybe the change that, I mean, what, what, what's your prediction on, on right, how this is right. going to play out? Um, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, definitely that's part of, you know, like all the, um, you, you know, anything that we knew in the past, we, we know this, but in, in our country as well, you know, of course, social media, the internet changes attitudes, behavior, um, you know, so much. So, so um, yeah, I think part of this recent round, if you look at the social media of many of these young women who were killed, you know, they were following uh, Western singers. I looked at the social media of a lot, a lot of these women that were killed, especially at the beginning were from the minority. So whether it was the first, uh, the first woman who was killed, Gina, uh, was a Kurdish, and the the next sort of handful of women that were killed were um, Azerbaijani Turks. And I looked at the Turkish social media of these girls. They were following, you know, singers in Turkey and movie stars in Turkey, and and the pictures of themselves were, you know, in Western clothes. And and you know, it was clear that they um, they had a you know a different. Um, you know, different didn't identify with the with the with the regime, and and many of them, you know, they were, they were using their primary language in social media, which social media is already. I think it's had a huge impact on the uh, minorities as well, because suddenly instead of just like, well, they just get Persian and you know Persian television, Persian media, they they now can have Kurdish, you know, watch TV in Kurdish, like all the ethnic minorities watch foreign television in their own languages. So whether it's Azerbaijanis watching television from Azerbaijan and Turkey, whether it's Arabs watching TV, you know, TV shows from the Gulf, uh, Kurds watching Kurdish TV from Iraqi Kurdistan and from Europe. So, so the the internet and satellite TV and social media has really had a huge impact on everyone, but also specifically on the ethnic minorities. I think something also to watch, maybe even as Americans, we need to watch this, is the very low birth rates in Iran. Um, they don't have a replacement birth rate. I think that tells you a lot about a people not being optimistic uh, about its future. You know, and people are sort of ha happy, feel prosperous. They tend to have children. You know, we've also had a huge reduction in the birth rate in the United States is also something to to think about. But I, I look about I look at that a lot. I think it tells um, those kind of trends um, when you have when there is, you know, when sort of when when there is access to birth control and sort of, you know, the number of children is a choice. And, and uh, um, it, it does it does represent, you know, um, something. And so when you have below replacement level, um, I think that that is a sign of a lot a lack of uh, optimism about the future in, in in Iran. There's also even very you know low marriage rates as well. Like many I've heard of many families where you know the women don't want to get married because they don't want to have to go under the the rule of a you know of a husband. And uh, um, but but it also tells you that they're you know the people are not living uh, sort of normal you know normal lives. So. Yeah. Um, uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Brenda Schaefer from the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, and we're discussing the Islamic Republic of Iran. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. You can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, Dr. Schaefer, so far we've covered many of the things about Iran that are, that are sort of concerning. We've covered oil and gas sector, how it feeds revenue to the government, uh, certainly to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. We've covered broader economic challenges and why the Iranian people sort of suffer under these sanctions due to the Iranian government's actions. We looked at some of those actions uh, concerning the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps activities in the region. We talked a little bit about Quds Force and the fact that uh, they, they do have agents operating uh, around the region. 
supporting uh, Houthis in Yemen, Hezbollah in Lebanon, probably Hamas in Gaza uh, and elsewhere. We would be remiss if we did not cover in some detail uh, the really concerning issue connected to Iran, and that's the pursuit of their of their nuclear program. And nuclear power is one thing, and I think most nations would support Iran investing in a nuclear pro- power program that used reactor technologies and uranium refinement that were not also capable of building nuclear weapons. Uh, but that's not the case with the Iranian program. Iran is definitely on a path that will give them the capability to build nuclear weapons. And they have been also purchasing more advanced combat aircraft, uh, building a better navy. They've spent a good bit of time developing ballistic missile uh, and drone technologies. If we were to look at this issue using sort of clear, logical assessments based on what we know to be true about Iran's government, their military, Iran's position in the Middle East, the tenets of Persian culture and Shiite Islam, how should we assess Iran's nuclear program? Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, so first again, your first point about, well, everyone would support them having, you know, nuclear energy, but not nuclear weapons. I think, you know, it's kind of, Iran has the second largest volumes of natural gas in the world. And actually, it has a very interesting um, domestic use of energy, about 70% of its fuel mix is natural gas. So they you know, they overwhelmingly use it for its its power production. Um, they use it in industry and petrochemicals. I mean, so they have almost, you know, if they had a normal economy and normal investments, they have almost unlimited um, natural gas. And natural gas, you know, producing electricity from natural gas is a lot cheaper than from nuclear. So actually, it, it wouldn't make any sense for, for a, a natural gas superpower to actually have a nuclear, you know, a nuclear energy. And the, and the only reason they would do it would be and or why they're doing it would be either to have a sort of a framework for for nuclear weapons um activity and also something that's kind of strange in in the middle east is that nuclear energy is still like a prestige project it's kind of funny because it's a techno you know over 70 year old technology i think you should move you know move on to something some other type of prestige but 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 also there is this you know, in terms of the uh, strategic cooperation uh, competition with its with its neighbors, um, you know, it's kind of whoever has uh, nuclear energy. It's sort of like they're a, they're a step closer also to nuclear weapons, and that this is some kind of, you know, is seen as a symbol of power uh, um, in, in in the region. But yeah, we, but we've seen Iran is getting closer and closer to to, to essentially to a virtual nuclear weapon, which means you know that they have all the uh, different components, and they basically just have to decide to, you know, to test and deploy. You know, so they're 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 pretty close to that uh, uh, threshold. Um, you know, and it's really, it's really, um, you know, a question if the um, how the Biden administration is going to approach it. It seems that it prefers to try through some sort of, um, you know, renewed JC JCPOA. And in fact, you know, under this situation, we're seeing that you know, despite um, these massive anti-regime demonstrations, um, the U.S. is pretty ambivalent because at the same time it wants, you know, in Europe as well, because um, the, the U.S. wants to get, you know, to, to negotiate. So they're not really pointing out, you know, a lot of these violations. It was interesting about two weeks ago, um, the regime executed a Swedish citizen. He was of Iranian Arab origin. Um, they kin- they lured him to Istanbul. They kidnapped him in Istanbul, drugged him, and drove him across Turkey. Um, they've kept him in Iran now for close to three years, and they they just executed him two weeks ago. And you think like, this is a Swedish citizen. It's a Swedish passport, and basically nothing from the EU, from Sweden, only some sort of tepid response that we're against, you know, capital punishment. Um, and uh, you know, so so basically, they you know, Iran can strike and hurt um, activists, anti-regime activists, you know, in Europe and even in the United States. Um, and basically the Western governments do very little or, or nothing because they still want to somehow get to a negotiated settlement with Iran. So unfortunately, we're starting to close in on the end of our hour today. Uh, but let me ask you this. If, if Iran were to develop a nuclear weapon, would Saudi Arabia counter the challenge from Iran with a nuclear program of their own? Uh, would, would Israel be compelled to strike Iran's nuclear facilities? We've heard some of that uh, that potential uh, threat uh, from the Israeli government. Uh, would that mean a general theater war? And, and let me ask you this. Is, is Iran's program today a third or fourth order, uh, maybe we call it a, a negative consequence, 
uh, of the AQ Khan network uh, that began many years ago out of Pakistan. Are we seeing the end results now of that proliferation effort from Pac within Pakistan supported by the People's Republic of China, actually? I know that's a great deal to unpack, and we don't have a ton of time, but maybe you could take a swing at the at any of those topics in whatever order you wish. Right. So, yeah, I mean, definitely um, um, there already is, in a sense, a regional arms race. You know, everyone looking if, if the, the big danger of Iran getting nuclear weapons is not just the fact that it could use those nuclear weapons, even though, you know, in most cases it probably wouldn't use them. But then all this regional meddling it's doing, you know, in, 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 in Iraq, Gaza, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Azerbaijan, Turkey, where it's, you know, it's trying to uh, destabilize these countries where it's supporting anti-regime militias. Um, you know, it, it would be very hard to push back against uh, this activity when Iran has nuclear weapons. It's like, you know, they're in a different category. You know, you can't really take, uh, you know, take take that risk. So I think many are are more concerned about uh, many countries, what, you know, what kind of regional role this would have. Um, you know, will Israel strike at the, you know, at the nuclear program? I, I, you know, it seems that Israel's strategy has been more, um, you know, instead of waiting until Iran, Iran has nuclear weapons, doing everything to uh, dismantle the program as it as it's being built, you know, wherever uh, wherever it can, and you know that seems to be any opportunity it has to, you know, take a part a part of it. And it seems like U.S. government is pretty is fine with that. Doesn't you know? On one hand, it's negotiating with Iran, but doesn't really mind that that Israel, when it can, that it dismantles parts of it. dismantle. I guess is kind of a nice word, but dismantles <laughs> parts of the program. Um, which, of course, even makes it easier for for the U.S. to to get to a deal with Iran, because if there's less for Iran to if Iran doesn't have that much more, you know, to something viable to shut down, um, you know, it's easier for Iran to to give in. But, um, um, of course, Iran keeps uh, pursuing and building and, you know, and these things are very, um, you know, very difficult to completely dismantle. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we're down to just uh, four minutes left in the show today. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground today, uh, a whole bunch of other questions that I would have loved to ask you. But unfortunately, you know, like I said, the time flies on this show. Uh, I, I always try to give my guests sort of the final word here. What final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners on the topic of Iran or, or broader national security challenges uh, and issues in the Middle East? Uh, the floor is yours. Oh, my God. That's, that's, <laughs> a, that's a hard one. Yeah, I would say that, you know, just like the demise of the Soviet Union, um, you know, we can learn a lot of lessons from that. What we, what we, you know, we didn't think the demise was possible and look at it, just, it, it happened. Um, people, people were following the ethnic groups, but I don't think, you know, um, I remember people at the time, experts on the USSR, US national security experts saying, um, I really think that what, Kyrgyzia is gonna be a country, you know, I, th I think we really couldn't imagine um, these kind of developments, you know, and who could have imagined, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And, and um, I mean, I got into this whole topic of Iran. You started with your first question when, um, as a Soviet analyst, that everyone was looking at the fall of the Berlin Wall and what's happening you know, with Eastern and Western Europe uniting, what's going to happen. And I said, hey, what happens when the wall falls between the Soviet Union and the Middle East? That's what I want to look at. And that's how I got into this whole topic of Iran, especially with the ethnic minorities, because it was clear to me that, wow, there's these new countries, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, and like, let's say Republic of Azerbaijan at the, at the time of independence had 9 million people. I looked across the border, wow, 30 million Azerbaijanis in Iran. And, you know, uh, Turkmenistan had at the time of independence about 4 million people, you know, across the border, similar amount, you know, in Iran. I said, wow, it has to be that these ethnic minorities are going to be affected by sort of their co-ethnics having national states on their borders. Um, let's take a look at it. So I've spent about 30, 30 years, time goes by, um, you know, looking at that. Um, and so, so I think, I think we have to learn, like sit, take, take, learn some lessons from the USSR, from what we didn't know, from what we made mistakes and maybe not, and make sure we don't make those same mistakes about Iran. So I think things are much more dynamic there than maybe uh, many of us appraise. Yeah, and on, on that point about uh, kind of you know ethnic groups uh, and where they reside in the region, uh, I think some of our listeners might recall uh, after uh, 
the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, there was some discussion about, okay, what do you, what do, you do with Iraq? We've been redrawing the map all over the world after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Should the Kurds have a homeland in the north? And that was, you know, that idea was rejected soundly by our NATO ally, Turkey. But there's also an impact there because Syria had a, has a significant Kurdish population. Northern Iran has a significant Kurdish population. These are all these aspirations that, uh, that you were just talking about with regards to the, the ethnic groups in the region. It's a very complex place in the world, no question about it. We're going to have to bring this show sort of to a close here. Professor Brenda Schaefer currently with the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, and a couple of think tanks in Washington, D.C. as well. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and insights this, with us this morning. Are there any resources you might highlight for our listeners so they can learn a little bit more about Iran or related topics? Uh, your website uh, as, as well, if you'd be willing to share that. Right. So um, Iran is more than Persia, ethnic politics in Iran. It's my, my most recent book. Um, it's available on Amazon and, and all the major books at booksellers are directly from the press, uh, the Greater Press. Um, yeah, and it's also available in ebook. Almost all academic libraries in the United States so carry it. So if you, if you don't have the, if you don't want to buy the book, you can actually read it through your through your local university uh, uh, library, and that, that's fine. Um, of course, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, the one of the think tanks I'm affiliated with, um, you know, conducts very serious research on Iran. Um, a lot, a lot to follow there. Um, and your website, you have your own website. Uh, yeah, but my website is not, not so active, uh, <laughs> self, but, uh, um, yeah, through Twitter, uh, Prof B Schaefer, um, I post most of my publications there and, and thoughts about the developments in Iran, developments in the Caspian region, and also the international, uh, energy market. So Professor Brenda Schaefer, author of the book, Iran is More Than Persia, Ethnic Politics in Iran, which launched in December of last year, 2022. Thank you for joining us here on National Security This Week. You also have a new book, Operational Energy. When is that one coming out? Uh, by the end of the year, it should be out. It's a textbook, though. It's for for you kind of a Navy Navy uh, Navy guys. Perfect, <laughs> perfect. Across the U.S. military. Yeah, in the Navy, we think all the time about fuel state on board our ships out at sea, so that, right. that that's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, John. Uh, that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.